welcome to this, another episode of Frame and Reference. I'm your host, Kenny McMillan, and today we're talking with Joey Famelli, the DP and content producer over on Adam Savage's Tested YouTube channel. Uh, it's a fantastic channel, um, both educational and entertaining, and uh, oftentimes meditative. <laughs> uh, you'll just have to check it out to see for yourself. Um, Joey's actually a personal friend of mine, so... Um, it's uh, this is kind of two guys just kind of catching up after a few months of not talking, uh, but you know I do try to keep it on the rails uh, as much as possible. So um, yeah, you know plenty of uh, tech talk. You know, tested is a channel in which they test stuff, um, as well as watching the uh, one day builds and stuff that um, Adam does. But uh, yeah, plenty of, uh, of gear talk as well as sort of learning about Joey and, and talking about, uh, in, you know, quote unquote, indie production on the whole. Bunch, bunch of great stuff in this one. So um, hopefully you'll have as much fun listening to it as Joey and I had uh, doing it. So without uh, further ado, here's my conversation with Joey Famelli. Um, how did you get started, like, as a as a creative like where did your visual um sort of influences come from like were you always into film or did you start some other way or how'd that get going yeah um how did i get started so i was always kind of i was always creative as like a kid um i think like uh, you know I'm, I'm at an age where the uh the old like vhs camcorder was very popular i don't know if you remember those like big old i don't even know it was vhs but it's essentially like a lot of parents had these camcorders. And so uh, me and my cousin used to make um, just a bunch of little animations, little short films, but it, it kind of ended there for a long time. I got really into uh, comic books at that time. This is the nineties. This is like the heyday of, you know, the, the Jim Lee, uh, X-Men, um, the whole Marvel universe I was super into. And so that was my path for a long time. I was really aiming to be in the comic book world, whether that'd be like, a, not really, a, maybe a writer, but I was really into, like framing up stuff, drawing, uh, doing my own panels, doing my own, my own, uh, essentially my own narratives in the comic book form. Uh, and so I was going for that for a long time. As I kind of got out of high school, I was, um, uh, I was doing a bunch of stuff in high school. It's kind of all over the place. I was in a, in a band playing music. I thought that was going to be a, a path I was doing. Uh, <laughs> <Yep>. yeah, <laughs> doing, um, uh, starting to get a little bit into photography, not, not very good at it. I, I didn't, uh, it, it was more than the technical stuff. It was still film. I just didn't have the patience for that at the time. You know, doing a lot of skateboarding, uh, and didn't really have a clear idea of what I was doing out of high school, except for just reading comic books, uh, watching a lot of movies. And it wasn't until I went off to, uh, it was, I was going to like a junior college and I went off to do a semester abroad in Florence, Italy. And oh, it was just. Yeah, it was it was wild. Like I was all of a sudden pulled out of my, you know, I, li I lived in a suburban hometown in north of San Francisco, and so there wasn't there wasn't a whole the world. My world was very small. Uh, you know, the the, the the townies I was around, everything felt very insular. And so getting out into the world, especially going to someplace like Florence, was was huge and sort of mind altering. Um, uh, I was going for just general classes. I I was taking like a full time uh, a full time load of of credits, but I was everything was sort of pointed towards art history and especially like the Renaissance art history. You know, we'd spend class time going to museums and checking out Michelangelo, Leonardo, all that, all the, the big Renaissance uh, heavy hitters. And so coming out of there, I, I sort of just reevaluated myself. Like I was really into art. Uh, I didn't, 
I still didn't know exactly what I wanted to do, but I thought uh, I needed to get out of the town I was in and ended up moving down to Los Angeles early on. And um, uh, I was still doing a lot of drawing, still thinking about Marvel, still thinking about comic books. But then I also started thinking, uh, I also started thinking about my love of movies at that time and really how I love to uh, take something from the start to the finish uh, of, of some of these things, especially like when it came to when it came to drawing, it was like coming up with an idea, characters, and then writing out something and then drawing those things out. And then like, sometimes I would even uh, scan these things into a scanner. I was using like After Effects and Adobe. And I was making animations and and uh, little like almost like pop-up book or flip book style animations. And that sort of led to me just having this moment of realization where like, you know, I think movies is kind of where it, it, like movies is where it's at, like film, like the music side of me loves it. I uh, love sound design, love scoring things like, a, or like thinking about composers and putting this art to, to eventually all the art that I would was doing became like storyboards for that stuff. So it sort of just kind of hit me like all at the same time of like, yeah, I think all of this artistic urges I have can be funneled into this thing of, of film. And so, uh, I started doing a lot of PA work, started doing, um, just interning at that time. Like this is now we're in like the early two thousands and like filmmaking was becoming kind of cool. Like I remember like project yeah. Greenlight on the lot, like those big shows, uh, MySpace had like a filmmaker mini DV was a thing. Right. So MySpace became like a place where young filmmakers were shooting mini DV short films. And yeah, this is I before. was one of them. Were you? Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> I got the, uh, Canon X, uh, X H a one mini DV camera. Uh, that's nicer than mine. I have an XL2. I still have my XL2. The, the XL2. That's. I was trying to think of which camera was it because there was that MySpace guy. I remember him always pose on those things. I'm like, what? Is, like, yeah, there's that XL because it had uh, interchangeable lenses and yeah, uh, like no cameras at that time really had that. And I probably wouldn't even know at that time when I wouldn't know what to do with a interchangeable lens camera. Like I was, I was riding that zoom on the on the XLH1 uh, and sort of figuring out. Figuring out what shots I liked, but again, like not, I wasn't really learning lensing. I wasn't learning focal lengths. I was just sort of, uh, that was my, my training ground in terms of knowing visually what I wanted. Um, and from there, I just made a ton of short films with uh, my friends, went to college, didn't go to college for film. I went actually for finance. Uh, Probably a better move at this yeah, point. Yeah, it was, <laughs> you know, I was being in Los Angeles and, and working on, on like music videos as a production assistant everybody I was around was, was coming out of a hundred thousand dollar debt in film school. And here I am at the exact same, you know, place as them learning on the job where I think you do a, a big amount of learning. And so that was my decider against film school was like, I, I can do this like self-sufficient. Like I, I can, I can seek out these people, seek out these productions and work on the job and learn it that way. And then go to school for finance and sort of get that safety degree at that time. Again, we're still in the mid 2000s. So like college was really pressed on everyone as being like, you need to get a degree. You need to get a college degree if you want to do anything. And so that was my safety. And then I just haunted the film department. I made a lot of good friends, some of whom I'm still making shorts with. Uh, John Finger is one of the the guys I, he's he's getting really into um, uh, LED screen volume stuff. And, you know, we still play around. I yeah, want to get into that so bad. I have some. Uh, I I do VR production now, and so I have like Steam trackers. So I'm gonna start. I'm gonna start messing into it uh, as soon as I get down and, and visit him. Uh, but yeah, just haunted the film club, made a bunch of short films with those guys, and then 
Uh, and then after getting out of college, I sort of entered into, um, you know, the job hunting phase uh, of my career <laughs> where I was uh, back up north. I'm back in the, the San Francisco Bay Area, not a whole lot of film stuff up there. And so I was just working part-time jobs and doing a lot of music video work. Uh, at this point, I was now competent enough to like grab a camera and do stuff. And so I was uh, either doing camera operator or like assistant camera on um, on some music video, the music video scene up in the North, the, the North Bay. And that's when I met uh, who had become sort of one of my, my mentors at that time, uh, Mike Sloat, who directs a lot of metal, uh, metal music videos and like uh, some early 90s punk stuff, like no effects and uh, I can blank on a bunch of other names of the Bay Area punk scene, but he was doing a bunch of things up here. And so I ended up just working with him a ton. Uh, and then he got this opportunity to go on tour with Machine Head, which is a big metal band. And they were going on this Metallica, on, uh, on tour with Metallica, and he couldn't do it. And so he threw the job to me, which being like a 24-year-old kid with very little experience at that time, I mean, I had I was doing stuff under the tutelage of people mostly, uh, but he threw me into the deep end with that. And I ended up going through the East Coast leg of uh, the Metallica tour as uh, sort of a behind the scenes documentary filmmaker with the band sort of documenting the life uh, and, and creating sort of something out of all this footage that they were getting from the East Coast and Europe. Uh, well, Metallica famously uh, Bay Area band. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, they're, they're, uh, they're up here. They, they were flying home every few days to I was living on a tour bus going through the East Coast and they would just, you know, we're in the East Coast. They would just fly back every few days, hang out in the Bay Area with their family. It was very interesting because you think of like metal bands and being on tour, you think like Almost Famous, right? The movie Almost Famous, right? You're just engulfed in these like this wild time. But like everyone there was kind of like they're family men. They just uh, played their music, practiced, went home. (laughs) Like it was very chill. It was cool. Uh, It also humanized the, you know, humanized them for me. And I think that that sort of thing kind of helps um, helped me work with actors and work with named talent later on. And, sure. And that, like just not knowing how to talk to them, not how to not condescend, not, not, to, not freak out or that you're talking to, you know, Johnny yeah. Depp or whoever. <laughs> and I've, I've really starting to learn like the folks who are in those, in those positions, like really appreciate when you don't <laughs> can appreciate a person who can hold their shit together <laughs> when they're around them. Yeah. Uh, and then from there, I, you know, I was coming back from that tour. I had this, I had all this, you know, I had all this footage. I sent the footage away, but I made copies of it and I cut it into like a little, it's like a little demo reel. Uh, this was the only thing I had that wasn't, that I shot personally. I, I guess I could have been labeled the DP of that. That also wasn't narrative short film. I had so much narrative, well, not so much, but I had a handful of narrative short film stuff, but it was all, you know, with, with the friends in the college. Like it didn't look great. It didn't, it wouldn't have got me jobs. Uh, but this was something I saw that could get me a job doing something. And uh, once I cut that together, I sent that off to some folks. And through through a, a loose connection with somebody else, I ended up getting an interview with a company called Whiskey Media in the Bay Area. Yep. Uh, now we're like late, we're like 2009, 2010, where digital was sort of a big thing. Like YouTube has been out for a few years. Uh, and there was tons of companies that were putting together small teams and doing these like digital productions. Well, um, and that's, that's right when the, uh, 
I've talked about this a few times, but that's right when the, like the five D came out. Pete, we, yes. we started to be able to shoot on SD cards instead of mini DV. Oh, so like, man. yeah, I missed that. I missed that whole five D thing. So I was coming from mini DV, jumped into Whiskey Media, who were using the DVX one hundreds. Uh, yep. I believe that's what it was. Yeah, with yep, the yep. P two cars, they were using like large. No, expensive. that was the H. That was the HVX two hundred. The, okay. the DVX one hundred was the Panasonic version of the XL two, except it didn't have. Right. In film school, it was always, are you going to shoot DVX 100 or XL2? And most film schools had the DVX. I think they were cheaper. That's funny. That's like the uh, yeah, the, the, the area, the area in red <laughs> debate just back in the uh, consumer. Oh, 100%. Dude, I remember when the, the red one came out in like 08 or 09, something like that. And um, everyone suddenly thought, oh, because it was affordable you know, whatever it was yeah. at the time, 30 grand, 40 grand, something like that. And we were like, man, if we, we could rent that, we're going to be real filmmakers today. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you man. know? Re- yeah. I, so I don't know if you remember these. I, when I was using that camera on the machine head tour, it was rigged out with, I think it was red rock that was making them, but it was like yep. a bunch of adapters and mirrors locked onto the end of that camera to make it Looks cinematic. Quote, Red unquote. Rock, Lettuce, and PNS Technic were the yeah. three companies that were doing that. that and you cool. lost like what? Two stops of light, yeah, four stops of light, some nonsense. And then what was it doing? Was it just, I can't remember. Was it just increasing the sensor size, a the theoretical sensor size to give you a. It was. Uh, so it was attaching a photo lens to the front, but then also it was, um, I believe there were some optical elements that were, it was like a speed booster almost, except there was no speed to be boosted. Um, (laughs) And it was, yeah. And it was focusing the output of the lens onto a piece of ground glass. And I remember the thing that PNS Technic did that was revolutionary was, um, all the ground glass in like the red rock or the, um, lettuce version. I could be confusing who did what, but some, one of these companies, uh, had a motor in it, which spun the ground glass. So because oh. all these other adapters, it had a, a still piece of ground glass. So in st- you would get this grain, but it wouldn't move. So it was like, it looked like you were filming. It looked like what you were doing, which was filming a projection. Yeah. So, so one of the companies, yeah. So one of the companies spun the ground glass. So yeah, the, actually. so the grain would move. That's wild. Really? Wow. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. But then you'd were... get the footage in upside down, which was a pain in the ass. And so then, then somebody the... had the mirrored version, which flipped it for you. And I mean, those were, I mean, it's silly now to think of, but those were, it was interesting, fun <laughs> times. It was a little bit of like emerging tech, a little bit of a, uh, you know, it was like filmmaking, like camera operation and filmmaking was a little bit of democratized. It was very new to everybody. And so it was, well, the was thing that, that so. The thing that we've talked about a couple of times, because there's a few guys who like kind of all came up that I've interviewed recently who all came up in that sort of same time. And we all kind of reminisce about how like when we got 24 P when we were able to shoot yeah. to SD cards, uh, you know, all that kind of uh, interchangeable lenses, all that kind of stuff felt or even the adapters felt like exciting and new. And that was like all we needed. Right. We were just like, if only we had like 24 P or whatever, or if only we didn't have to shoot to these tapes and do login capture. Uh, and now it's like, you hear like, Oh, this one does 8k. And you're like, Oh fuck, who cares? Like, that's uh-huh. not, that's not exciting to me. Like that's, you know, the adapt getting the, that giant adapter thing was exciting, you know? <laughs> yeah. I'm at a point now where I'm like, Oh, I 
I want that dolly. So if I want to put this thing on a techno. Like, like yeah. The weird things I get excited about now are like have nothing to do with the cameras. It's just it's more just like ooh, run that. That's a long dolly track. I like this. <laughs> yeah, or like do the Deacons thing of just getting like a dolly track with the remote head, like the Libra head, you know, so you can just yeah. operate it from with the wheels. I was just I was just doing some. I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but I was just editing some behind the scenes stuff or something, and I was just all the different heads and dollies that are available now. I'm like, oh wow, like that's getting to watch how the how simple yet like intimidating some of this stuff can look is uh, I don't know, it's a lot of fun watching that behind the scenes <laughs> content. Dude, I remember it's funny, man. You're like unlocking all these. Mem- I remember <laughs> one memory you unlocked for me was I remember back in elementary school or uh, junior high we would do flip books with PowerPoint. Oh, so, so we would, we would do stick figures. It was usually like a skateboarding stick. We would have like a stick figure, like skateboarding and hitting like yeah. obstacles and stuff, but you would just hold the right button and it would fly through and we would oh, animate that way. It's, yeah. You can almost, it, yeah. It's almost like a little frame. <laughs> yeah. It was laborious. Um, but the thing that you reminded me of is I remember my freshman year of college, uh, my buddy, uh, smalls, was it, what's his real name? David Burchell. Uh, he, uh, had you know we all brought something to our film school so i had the xl2 um you know some other people had maybe like some connections to things but uh you know a nice house somewhere in the area but smalls brought uh he had a, a jib he had a jib arm oh. so you better believe those that first year there was just jib shots in Every- everything <laughs> no one had a jib in 2008 <laughs> yeah that's like the fs 700 when we if FS 700. Yeah. When we got that, it was like, all of a sudden everything was slow-mo. Everything was 120 frames a second. (laughs) Oh dude. Speaking of like, uh, I just did kind of a a while, maybe a few months ago, I did like a a sort of retrospective review of the XL2 because I was able to plug it into my recorder. Oh, I saw saw that. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, it occurred to me like, wow, this thing is came out in like 2007 and it had interchangeable lenses with an EF. They had an EF adapter that was this big. So you, you could have used stills lenses on the thing, you know, uh, interchangeable lenses, uh, uh, built in NDs, you know, you could, uh, selectable white balance 24 P in 2007. And then like cameras started to come out that didn't have all that shit. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I, that's so like the FS 700 having 120, and then now it's like hard to get. Right. And I don't know. Like I know with the G, I use the GH5 quite a bit, and it, I one of the cam, one of the reasons I liked that camera at that time was like the smaller sensor meant like the processing power wasn't as intensive, and so like they were able to like play with things more advanced than, you know, at that time like, uh, you know the uh, uh the optical image stabilization, like the, the the frame rates you can get on that, like they like you couldn't really get that with A7 A7s yet. Um, right. So I wonder if that has something to do. I mean, oh, I mean, definitely. I mean, like when I've talked to the, some people at Canon about the C500 and like just very quest- questions I had, a lot of time the answer was, well, it's a big ass sensor and it's hard to process all that information at once. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It's, uh, yeah, I can't imagine. I'd love to like do a, a like go into a factory at some point and break down what is, <laughs> what is going on. Cause I'm still, oh. digital sensors still baffle me. Yeah, it's uh, I, I'm actually going to do something with Strange. I'm going to start working with Strange again, making more content for him. But like uh, one thing that we want to do is sit down and create the perfect cinema camera, like borrow oh. all of the parts that we like from various cameras that we like and see what that looks like. Yeah, because I can't imagine like 
most of the there's like the Venn diagram of all these cameras that we like is pretty collapsed in on itself. It's always like like one thing I like about Red is like there's a function that was demoed for me on the Gemini when that first came out. And that was you could push a button and in the metadata it would create a marker. Mm. And I was like, I would love that if like on my camera, if 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 there was like something I wanted to remember, like, ooh, that's a good thing. Right. Just push a little button and it creates a metadata marker. I like metadata is the one thing I think like black magic does really well yeah. uh, and red does really well. And I think more, more metadata features, more digital slating, more um, right. I wonder behind if this the scenes stuff. I wonder if it gets trickier with like HVEC or like H.264 codecs, you know, cause some of the cameras, like I, I feel like that'd be an easier thing when you're shooting out to ProRes or shooting out to some kind of raw format. Like you can pass along that data. I mean, it shouldn't be that difficult. Who knows? I don't know. <laughs> But I mean, they all, all these cameras have some version of raw at this point, you know, I mean, maybe right. like Canon's raw light, I think is less raw and more, um, half processed footage. Yeah. You know, it's 12 bit. It's not like raw, raw. And, uh, but you can still select, you know, your ISO and your white balance and all that stuff. So I think with your black magic or your, um, red raws, those are far more raw, like literal raw data. Raw, and I think you can probably stuff a lot more stuff in there. Yeah. Yeah. Now we're now we're getting to a point. Uh, some of the cameras we have in house. Well, I guess I should finish. So oh, I sure. Now. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good tangent. Um. Uh. So what I do now? Go. So going back from Whiskey Media when I got that job, uh, I we ended up I ended up working with a small team, teaming up with um, Adam Savage, who was the MythBusters host, one of the MythBusters hosts, uh, that television show, and. He has a digital brand now, which is predominantly platformed on YouTube, uh, called Adam Savage's Tested. And so uh, I've been working with him since 2012. A uh, pretty small team. It's like this, it's always been sort of four to five of us. I think we just got our fifth head in. Uh, so I work with him and another host uh, slash producer, uh, Norman Chan. And my current role is now sort of i kind of do a lot of stuff i wear a lot of hats my role is director of production but i i i sort of i work on a lot of uh you know special projects campaign stuff uh when i'm not shooting and editing sort of our normal everyday content we do a lot of iphone stuff now being that when the pandemic hit we couldn't all get together so we shoot a lot on iphones uh now we're getting back into cameras again we just got the the sony fx6 um that's a great camera yeah, I, I totally dig it. I, I actually brought it home this weekend to pl- really play around with it uh, a lot more. But we went, we're, we went from the FS5, FS7 uh, to this one. And then we we rent, we scale up because one of my rules is to scale up and down uh, as we need. And so if we have a, a shoot that needs more people, more crew, then I'll sort of come in and, and manage that and then rent cameras. We just, we just shot with the C500 Mark II uh, yeah. and then the Atlas anamorphic lenses. And before that, like we've used um, Alexas very rarely. Uh, I remember, I think you and I were talking when you were thinking about buying the FX6. You were kind of waffling between that and was it like a C300 or a C7? Yeah, I think it was this. Oh, good question. Yeah, it might have been the C300 Mark II. That's what you shot with before the 500, right? No, I shot with a C100 Mark II. Oh, that's right. Okay. <laughs> uh, which I still think is a great camera, but now that the C70's out, it's kind of like it's better yeah. in almost every way, you know? Yeah, now, I think it's you also got raw too. And I was looking at that pretty, pretty, uh, yeah. But yeah, it's, we never it, like six. Uh, oh, so two things. One, I don't know if you saw, but the C70 is getting raw in March. Really? 
yeah so now it's a mini c300 like i've unless you need like sdi and a, and a few of the other special features that the c300 has you know the recording media difference and all that kind of thing yeah. c70 is really attractive but i wanted to ask what made you decide if you were looking at the c300 mark ii i could definitely see the difference but um what made you decide on the fx6 fx6 was a combination of of we are we've we have been a like a, i guess a sony house for a little while now with the fs5 fs7 sure. uh and we have so much i mean this is kind of this might, might sound petty but like we have all the batteries we have we have everything yeah. that's a huge go, consideration yeah it was just, just being in that workflow just grab that you know we have um we have canon glass i got a uh i got a mount that can just easily transfer everything over um I mean, not that we couldn't use that with the Canon, but like we just kind of knew the FS5, FS7 so well, we thought it would be a, a an easier transition, especially since we've we've sort of become it, for a long time it was just me and maybe one other person doing all the production stuff in house. But it's it's sort of changed a little bit where everyone kind of touches the, the gear and and touches the editing systems, and so I've worked with them on the Sony FS5 for so long that like. Yeah, I thought it'd be easier just to get that camera in and so that everybody can use it and and yeah, we can kind of share that knowledge. Yeah. It's also, yeah, it looks nice. It looks, I mean, I've always had issues with some of the color and magentas on the FS5, but this one looks a lot better in my opinion. You know what's funny is I just saw a, uh, someone had done a comparison between the FX3, which is not a fucking cinema camera. People right. need to stop. Uh, FX6, FX9 in Venice. And the FX6 looks better than the 9, in my opinion. Really? I, I'm really disappointed in that FX9. Like, oh, <laughs> I did a man. comparison of it versus the C500, the Venice, and the Alexa LF. And, like, they, at that level, like, they all, yeah, they all look great. But um, the 9 seemed to have, like, kind of a, a problem with, like, depth of color, the best way I can dis- explain it. Okay. It still had that greenness that you kind of used to see with Sony. But um, the 6 and 3, that's all gone with, like, the new Cinetone. Um, yeah processing and all that stuff like it just lo- it looks way better that's what we've been shooting in is that and i really want to i really want to get my hands on a venice and just shoot with both and see how i can match them together and like if they do match okay like, they match okay they honestly really? do yeah um the venice obviously you're going to see a lot more uh spatial resolution and a lot more yeah. uh the image cadence is a little more i hate saying it but cinematic but <laughs> quote unquote um, cinematic yeah yeah but uh no yeah, th- they've done a great job um kind of making those all work similarly yeah from what i've seen of the venice it just it looks i i, I really like the image coming out of it i love it's just it's low light i think there was that movie uh kate was just shot on it if you've seen that netflix movie kate um pretty, pretty yet, wild no. like john wick style movie but with uh, oh really uh what's her name from scott pilgrim uh blanking on on names today but um yeah we was all shot the, in venice uh, um the girl in the band uh the girl that plays ramona not flowers. captain marvel no not brie larson ramona flowers oh she um she name. damn it yeah i know who you're talking about though yeah <laughs> yeah she's um mary elizabeth winstead there you go <laughs> uh yeah it totally worth seeing that's one of my one of my favorite movies the last couple of years uh Kate. Um, but yeah, I'll shot with the Venice, but I, you know, when, I don't know if you've had this issue when thinking about investing in cameras is I want it to be an investment and I want it to be, I want it to be, uh, something that will help me get work <laughs> if that makes yeah. sense. But I feel like you need to have the, you need to have the red or the airy name 
to get most people to, <laughs> you know what? Um, I would say that in 50 episodes, which is giving away when we record this, cause right now <laughs> the last one that just came out was 40, but, um, a, a huge number of these projects are shot on Venice. Really? Huge number. It's right now. Like it's either Venice or, um, RELF, but a lot, I mean, a lot of Venice, a lot of TV shows are shot on Venice. Um, plenty of films. I think a lot of movie, like older, I shouldn't say older, but like more traditional DPs probably gravitate to the LF. But, um, I'm, I was actually shocked over the past year and a half of how many, just how many projects are shot on Venice. Oh, that's good to hear. Yeah. I'd Um, like to see somebody else kind of enter, enter the, the, the conversation uh, a little bit more seriously when it comes to that stuff. Yeah. Alexa is um, just so simple. I love using that one. That's, I mean, that's literally why they made it that way is I was just speaking to an older gentleman who said like, that was what got him into the Alexa. He was a staunch film guy. And when he was using, uh, he was saying like the Panavision Genesis or the Viper or anything like that, it was just huge and complicated and wires and all this crap. And then Ari came out with the Alexa and he just went, Oh, there's a button to record. There's a button for white balance. And that's pretty much it. That's, that's all I need. Thank God. Giant record button. Just hit that. Yeah. We, um, uh, we, we shot at a, we shot in New Zealand and it was with the Weta and Peter Jackson team. And he allowed, I was prepping for the day and he allowed me to go. Uh, this was 2016. He let me go into his, his studio and just basically pick out the gear and the lights and we ended up taking some red, oh, they, they're a red house. They had, you know, they shot all the right. Hobbit on red, but I was looking at the red 3D rig that they had and it was essentially oh, one red and then another red shooting down into a mirror and I'm just staring at this thing, thinking about how they shot the Hobbit, you know, taking this giant massive thing around. I'm like, oh, that is, there's a lot of technical aspects of cameras I love. This is not one of them. Like I want something simple and easy to carry, easy to use. Yeah, like that monster rig from uh, the Irishman. Right. Have you yeah. seen photos of that thing where it's like yeah. four cameras mounted to the same unit? Because it was all have, for the de aging, right? I mean, it was that's a yeah. They were witness cameras. They were using Alexas as witness cameras, so th- that footage never got used. <laughs> I think one uh, of them they had a uh, uh, infrared, like they had they had changed the filter to like infrared or the oh. the sensor to like infrared, so that they could get like depth and. Uh, whatever There's a lot of data for that cg team yeah that's cool but yeah those that. rigs were enormous um what i was going to say earlier was uh uh dan stoloff who shot the boys was saying how he, the boys is shot on venice um but something fascinating he told me which i it, it gave me like a boost of confidence was we were just sitting there talking and, and he was like you know uh one thing that's kind of nice because i asked him if he used the rialto extension which okay. um i've learned since apparently is kind of a pain in the ass um it's a cool idea and apparently it works great but from i had read some things on some forums about people who have to rig that thing up and like put it not the dps but like everyone around it right and they're just like uh rialto but um he was saying that uh the studio or whoever didn't really want to spring for that extension um so he was like yeah sometimes i'll just grab my fuji xt3 put it where we couldn't fit the camera and all. And there's plenty, there's probably one or two shots in every episode of the boys that shot on the XT three. And really? I was like, what? Wow. I grabbed mine. I was like this thing. And he goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that thing. And I was like, you gotta be kidding me. Like, <laughs> That's too funny. That's a very like anamorphic high contrast show. Like that's, that's cool that they're able to 
Well, and I, I use the X-T3 since that conversation. I've used it as the B cam to my C500. And when you get the footage into Resolve, it does not look the same at all. Right. But it but it colors to match very easily. Okay. Um, And so, yeah, he said he just would throw a PL mount on it. And then they recorded out um, to a recorder so they could get like a ninja or something. 10 yeah. bit. Yeah, yeah. That was the biggest thing. We, we, we There was a period of time where we were shooting both the C100 and the Sony FS7 or FS5. And we did this big gig um, with multiple cameras. It was like those two and a bunch of drones and GoPros, Blackmagic Micro. <laughs> I remember the Micro cinema oh, camera. Yeah, this guy? The little yep, yeah. like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we got, we got introduced to that on Mythbusters. They replaced their GoPros with those eventually because at that time you can just color it to match their, uh, whatever they were using at the time. But trying to go from Canon to Sony in DaVinci, it's like I'm taking curves and I'm like adjusting hues to match. I'm like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, I was, I, you know what I did honestly is I just did um, set my girlfriend up with some color charts and stuff. And I've done oh. this. Like, this is how I made all my like picture. Well, maybe not the picture profile so much, but like I've done this a lot, but I did it with mine is I just put the two cameras together and created a LUT that I drop onto the XT3 footage to match the C500. You know, because that way I only have to do it once yeah. and it's technically accurate. It's not like a look. It's just like technically moving the curves around and, and adjusting, you know, the color chart. And that gets me 85, 90 percent of the way there every time. Wow. OK. And it's like you just put a lot of work in at first and then you don't need to think about it anymore. So I was just at the shop yesterday and Adam just finished rebuilding uh, an Aeriflex camera. Like. Oh, cool. Like you got the, all the motors working. And so we had it, we had it open and he's just showing me how it, you know, how it shoots the film down and like everything. We're, we're talking about putting some film in and shooting and he showed me like the, the tools, you know, I have a light meter and color meter and, and stuff like that, but I've never actually put my hands on film film. I've always been a digital, uh, and he's oh, showing nice. me some, yeah, we're so excited to look at that, but he was showing me some tools that I didn't even consider. And one of them was like an eyepiece that uh, I have to look at it more, but the way he explained it to me was it was an eyepiece that DPs use when they were shooting film that would sort of, I don't know how to explain it. I guess it would, it would just bring the dynamic range of the world around you into something that's a little bit closer to how a film would see. And so it's just a tiny little, like almost like a monocle. And he's just, Oh no, you know what that is, is um, it's, it was used for, I can't, what is it called? Uh, Gaffer's glass. Gaffer's glass. Okay. What you would, it was blue, I think. Yeah, like I had a, a blue, dark, dark so, yeah, like ND or something. So what that was actually used for was, I've never, I didn't think about it like as a um, dynamic range. So it's, you know what it is more like is it's uh, like a welding helmet. So what they yeah. would do is it would be to check HMIs or like uh, carbon arc lights. So the gaffer could look into the light and not fucking blind himself. Not, <laughs> wow. Okay. So it's actually they're just there to just to dim it, just like an ND or something. So you so you could down. literally look at like the carbon arc or the HMI or whatever and see what's going on in there and make sure that it's like correct. Okay, I, I gotta I gotta let him know. Yeah, because he's, he's giving me these tools. I'm like I've never touched these before. Trying to explain it to me, but uh, he uh, to be fair, that's the on the box description of what a gaffer's glass is for all. Like I never. It's interesting to think of it as like a dynamic range compression or something like that. But that's what a gaffer's glass. He might have shown you something else as well. I could be maybe yeah. completely off the mark. But if you Google gaffer's glass, it's, I think that's what you're thinking of. Oh, 
Because yeah. that would be a cool product. Because like that film straight up, you have like three stops up and down and that is it. Well, so I, that was going to be my, that was, I guess that's, that's where I started thinking about it was because I've been shooting a lot of VR with uh, with Oculus. And so the, it everything is so new when it comes to immersive 3D 180 VR video mm. uh, that it's, it's, tr- it's really tricky as a camera operator or cinematographer to bring that stuff and, and light it correctly and also get the right monitoring tool. So like we shot, I think three or four seasons, uh, about eight, eight episodes each. And so much of it is putting the camera, putting this camera with these two large lenses. We're getting a new Canon for this, this year's project, but it's essentially two giant the, fish eyes. The double lens that the exactly, R5? Yeah. Look, it looks yeah. like a, like a, uh, it looks like Johnny five alive or something uh, like yeah, a robot, yeah. a short circuit robot. Uh, but we don't have great monitoring tools yet. Uh, I mean, you can kind of see, you can kind of see the image. You can sort of, you can sort of get your exposure. I still use, I still meter it. So I like, I'll bring out a light meter and I'll know what exposure looks great. Exactly. Yeah. But the problem I'm having is when we shoot for 69 or whatever well, frame, you know, we sort of light, play with contrast and move things around but like none of that works in this context like when i'm looking at the image on the viewfinder and i see oh yeah the subject's lit and everything else kind of falls off there's some like i have some lights there that uh add a little bit of um you know bring back some levels but when you put on the headset the world completely changes because you want to give the user the experience of standing there in the room but the cameras don't have the ability to see levels like we do. Like they don't have as good of dynamic range as our eyeballs, right? And so right. You, I can light someone and make it look good on screen, but then you put the headset on and all of a sudden they, they look like they're in a cave or something because the levels drop off so dramatically on um, certain parts of the image that like it just, it kind of, you sort of lose the the, the immersion. So I, I was looking at that tool. I'm like, oh, it would be so good to have something like that, just like a monocle where I can just, I can look at the world in the way that the VR cameras are going to see it because I, right now I'm walking around to every part of the room with a light meter, <laughs> adjusting lights to make corners pop just a little bit, just to bring those levels up so that it feels, you know, feels real while at the same time looking at the camera, at the, the viewfinder and seeing something that's a little more washed out and it's, yeah, it's super difficult right now. <laughs> You are kind of getting the, uh, the like the OG film experience then, you know, just like, yeah. I don't know what this is going to look like until we're in the grade, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that's what they really need. They need like a live view headset. And I'm sure it'll, it'll come out at some point. But like, it's, you know, you have to like take those images. You're hitting two separate images. You have to take that stuff together and like stitch it together. And like, get, especially with 3D, you have to like stitch it correctly uh, so that those images give you the 3D the, the correct 3d experience so that the person standing three feet ahead of you looks like they're three feet ahead of you and it's not focused all weird. So yeah, it's very, it's very new emerging technology, but also like you said, like there's a little bit of some old school filmmaking stuff, but also I have to, as a, as a shooter, I have to like almost forget a lot of the things. Like I, I want to do, you know, a weird angle. I, I want to go Dutch, but like, no, no, you have to like stay at the eye level of the person. Like you're you're, you're basically trying to simulate a, a person standing there, which is, it's, it's not what you do as a cinematographer. <laughs> you, right. you, you have your artistic manipulation that you sort of add to the, the image of the story and you kind of can't do that here. Are you, uh, so you said you never worked with film before. Besides, I've never like, worked photography. With, yeah. Photography. And that was it. And like, uh, uh, not film cameras. The closest is, I got was no. Yeah. No. 
is Adam going to let you like take the, the Ari Flex for a spin and shoot Yeah, something? we're going to get some film. I think he has a little bit more to do, a little more work to do. Uh, he just built some, or he, re, I guess, refurbished and like built some old school sticks for it. It has, has like the airy, like the ball head <laughs> on those things. So we got some he wooden sticks. He would make the it. wooden sticks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it looks straight up like I'm looking at it, like this looks out of time. Like it's, it's great. It's not just an area flex on a modern, you know, assassin tripod. It's like, it's, it looks like something from that era. And, uh, yeah, it's loud as hell. So we're, we're probably going to do something MOS or just, just shoot some, some tests, but yeah, it should be fun. Well, you said you, you like, uh, doing the like Foley and stuff like that. That could be a good, like yeah. really like a really good Foley test or like, um, just doing everything in post, you know? Yeah. Hone that yeah. skill. That is a, but then also just, yeah, I, I wouldn't even know. I mean, I know there's a couple companies I used to live by down in Los Angeles that do like film processing, but yeah, that's going to be nerve wracking to send off stuff as a first time film shooter and, uh, having that well, process. D- definitely. I mean, we were just talking about this in the last podcast, uh, rip off a few tests, like a few hundred foot rolls of just, yeah. just testing. Like what they had us do it at NIFA was get in a lighting situation that you're expecting and you just have a, um, whatever piece of paper, something like that. And, uh, something to do, uh, that'll help is at the head of every roll, shoot a gray card. And if you're shooting color, then a color chart, just like have, have the person standing there ready and then start rolling until the, it speeds up and everything and like hits there. And that gives the, uh, I'm sure the technology's there where they don't need this anymore, but that, that just really helps the processor know what's supposed to look correct. Right. Okay. If you've got the gray card and the color chart there for them. But, um, few test rolls. What we would do is we would, uh, whatever stock we were given, we would set that up with the gray card and a person in the lighting situation we do. And we would just write like uh key, you know, shoot a few seconds at key, shoot a few seconds overexposed by a stop, underexposed by a stop, bop, 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 and then oh. get the whole thing back. And then you go, all right. So in, a, in this situation that we're in, I know that one stop over looks really good on skin. That's where we should be shooting right. this or two stops under, you know, whatever looks best to you. And this all changes dramatically i'm assuming with different stocks different style of stocks yeah. <laughs> right yeah I mean, yeah well now that today you've got one option and that's 5219 okay that's is it 35 or is it uh 16 mil? 16 okay so fi- uh, whatever 7219 okay. um but uh yeah kodak fuji doesn't even make motion picture stock anymore really so you you, all, you you can't buy short ends like everything all that infrastructure is <laughs> they might exist but right. yeah, I don't, I don't, they would potentially be expired or something like that. You know, at, at film tools, we just found a box of some exposed and some unexposed 35 reels. Wow. Just behind some stuff hanging out. Jeez. And we, well, cause Moviola is the main company that, that does film tools and, uh, pro video coalition. So we're assuming it was, you know, Moviola is the, the editor, the giant editor, yeah, yeah. flatbed editor. So we were like, man, I, this must just be like somewhat like it, it didn't have enough data on it for us to know what it's from. But I was like, dude, you need to get this processed and then we need to take these other roles and go shoot something Wow, for like the film tools, YouTube or something. But, um, yeah, you're going to get 7219 for that or black and white. Although Kodak did just start black and white, black and white could be really cool. Yeah. Um, a little more forgiving in certain ways, especially with like color contrast. Right. You just throw it over colors. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can use whatever light you want. Um, but uh, Kodak did just start making Ektachrome again. Really? That's what they shot all of Euphoria season two on. 
I haven't seen Euphoria. I need to check it out. Ugh, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a but dude, it's so weird. It's like a bunch of college age or older people playing high school students just doing drugs and fucking each other every uh, second. It's the like nineties, right? All the yeah. high school kids are like played by like thirty five year olds. <laughs> yeah. But um yeah, Ectochrome, as far as I'm aware, Ectochrome is is a slide film. So you've got like right. no dynamic range. You have to fucking nail it. Yeah. Yeah, there's no room for, <laughs> for I would maybe here. say stick to a negative film. To yeah, start. <laughs> I might go something more forgiving. <laughs> yeah, but I'm excited for that. That'll be fucking cool. I'd love, I'd love to see what you do with that. Yeah, I think at some point he wants to like modify it a little bit and and add some modern, <laughs> some modern things to it. Uh, I'm not sure what that is yet, but uh, we'll, we'll yeah we'll we'll see. <laughs> It'll be untested. Yeah, might have to get a like a blimp for it or something to bring the the, the noise the motor noise down. That's what he was talking about. Yeah, he really wants to do something. Uh, get one of those old school like sound, you know, sound compressors or whatever for the yeah camera. So how did you, um, you kind of alluded to it with the whiskey media thing, but how did you get involved with tested? Like, was that, how did that first meeting go with Adam? Right. So, uh, that was, that was the result of a buyout. So when I, when I got involved with whiskey media, there was five brands, five digital brands. So if you think of whiskey media as the parent company, there was like a movie website, a uh, a video game website which is still around giant bomb and then like an anime comic book and uh and tested i came on the same time that they were relaunching or that they were launching tested and screened the movie website and so there was five of us in-house video producers we were sort of what they would call like producer editors mm-hmm. and predators. I, predators right yeah a, <laughs> i hate that phrase <laughs> It's I'm, I'm start. It died for a little bit, and I'm starting to hear it pop up a little more now. The, the yeah. predator phase. Uh, but I did all of Tested's launch videos. They came on. I shot all their launch videos with uh, my boss at the time, uh, Vinny Caravella, and got them going. Then handed that project off to another video producer. I went over to this uh, the movie website and worked with those hosts full time, uh, and then kind of as a you know sort of parachuted in when needed for like the conventions for everything else so we did a lot of conventions across all five brands but you know like like a lot of tech companies in the 2010s it wasn't making a whole lot of money and they ended up selling off a few of the brands they ended up selling half to cbs that's where like giant bomb went that was where their home uh remained for a long time and then tested Team tested was sold to a company called Wellrock, or at the time it was Berman Braun, but it was a, a company down in West Hollywood who was getting into digital and getting into uh, a ton of stuff. And so they were doing like Kardashians digital stuff, um, a bunch of like AOL stuff. And so they bought tested uh, as a way to to bring a digital home to their clients, which were Adam and Jamie from MythBusters. And so that meeting, uh, I wasn't involved with that meeting. That was uh, uh, Norman and Will from Tested and the owners of Whiskey Media sitting down with Adam and find if it's a, if that's a, a good fit. And I think the, I think the pitch to, to Adam and Jamie were, you know, if you guys are the don't try this at home folks, like we are the try this at home folks. And so like, that we, oh, that's that, a good, yeah, that's a good it was like a good pitch. pitch. Yeah. <laughs> so like that, that marriage started there. And we, you know, we left Whiskey Media. We had all the gear with us. Um, part of the purchase was like, you take all of the stuff. Like, 
you and the brands come, you, the gear, the brands come with us. And then the other brands go somewhere else because CBS already had stuff. And so I, yeah, yeah, I was, there's pictures of me in the studio, just me. It was just three of us. It was Norm, Will, me. And here I am with five Panasonics. I have a TriCaster, like a, like a $50,000 TriCaster, which is like a multi-cam mixing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. TriCaster must be so pissed at the like Zoom revolution. There's so many inexpensive uh, mixers now. We're looking at our TriCaster. We still have it. I'm looking at it like, I think we missed the point of selling this, but I don't know. I'm going to try at some point. Probably sell it to a studio. They're not going to use yeah, a black there's a lot of like a, Yeah. And it, it, like churches use them a lot. Anyway, yeah. Oh, so we, sure, I, yeah. I had a ton of this stuff. And so I just sat there for like the next few months and built out a studio. Uh, and then we would jump over to Adam's shop and like shoot with him maybe like once or twice a week because Mythbusters were still going on. And so they were shooting Mythbusters. Adam would come over with us and, and shoot for a little bit. And then we do a bunch of original content. And slowly as time went on, Adam's schedule freed up. Mythbusters eventually ended. And so he became much more of a full-time uh, involvement. And, and now it's, it's a pretty close, uh, pretty close collaboration in terms of like the day-to-day. So it's, it went from three of us to like five or six of us. And then, um, yeah, you know, it was all part of a purchase and all part of a, a, a marriage there and that we got involved with them. Was uh, Mythbusters like a big thing for you because you're uh, slightly older than I think the demographic that like probably watches tested but yeah Mythbusters I actually kind of just I don't know if I was in the right age or the wrong age or the wrong time but I was coming out of high school in 2000 and I went off I you know I once I once I went abroad and did that like I just had this sort of less consuming super ambitious kind of track and so I never that's when that show just started so I kind of missed the whole the whole aspect of that. I think if it came out while I was in high school, it would have been a big one for me, but um, I totally missed it. And so like when I came on board, like I seen it, I've seen the show. I was very familiar with it, especially cause it was a Bay area show and there wasn't a whole lot of, of those. Uh, but yeah, I, I just, I would see things in there and like Adam would tell me stories and I just kind of like, Oh yeah, that's, I don't know. I have to, I have to catch up <laughs> at some, at some point. I'm going to sit there and watch a marathon. It's got to be interesting for him to like go to the conventions and stuff and talk to people who have like a more intimate knowledge of his show than him. Cause you know, when right. you're, a, when you're a fan of anything, you probably know more than the people who made it. Cause you've probably watched it a million times. Whereas if oh, you yeah. made the thing, you did it once, maybe you've seen it a second time when it aired or whatever, and you're done. You can like make pulls from a specific episode and one specific thing. Uh, the biggest, the, the wildest thing that I think came out of working with, Adam or observing, observing that the culture on the show is he would do, we, we would still do a lot of conventions. We're at Comic-Con like every year before COVID and he would do a lot of speaking engagements there and conferences. And some, and sometimes we'd shoot those. Sometimes we just watch them. Uh, but I'd bring up a camera, you know, go to the press, the press booth, plug in an XLR, get audio and just sit there and, and shoot. And I've shot you know, a dozen or so of his, of his talks. And there's always a big Q and a portion. And being that the show aired, started airing like around 2000 and went on 2013, 14, 15, those folks are now older and getting jobs. And there is an insane amount of people who are like, I watched your show when I was younger. And like, now I work for NASA. <laughs> or like, I watch your show right. here and now I'm an engineer. Like, oh, wow. Like, I I didn't realize, I, I guess I'm now seeing the, and, and I'm sure it's a trip to him too, but seeing the effects of his show on people and how that that's not, that how important science communication and engineering communication is to sort of motivating younger folks to take these career paths that aren't, uh, you know, as sexy as some other things that are in the media. Uh, so it's, yeah. it's really cool. It's, it's been a benefit of working with them. 
for me, it was like one of those shows that, uh, cause I'm only a few years younger than you, but like, it was one of those shows that was always on. It was just yeah. always there, you know? So like it, when it ended, I was like, wait, are you allowed to do that? Like I thought <laughs> right. that, like it was always there. I thought that was just something that we always had was just these yeah. two guys blowing shit up and, and teaching us things. You know, it's like, it felt like Sesame street, you know, like if Sesame street ended, we'd all be like, excuse you. Like, yeah. Like that doesn't happen. Like you're not allowed to do that. Um, Actually, you reminded me of a question I wanted to ask you is when you went to uh, Italy and you did your semester. um, One thing we've been talking a lot about on this podcast recently has been a lot of these older DPs or more traditional DPs um, started as painters. And I'm wondering if spending the time in those museums or anything like that, you know, studying art, what that might have taught you about uh, art yourself, because you can get lost in a painting, not only thinking about the story of the painting, but also the process of painting it, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think the biggest thing, the biggest thing I took away, or at least thinking about it in retrospect is, you know, I, and this might have to do with some of the movies that I kind of grew up on in the eighties, but like during the nineties and comic books and the shows, then I was just so used to being blown you know, just a high key image being blown at me, right? Detail and everything, uh, lots of color. But being there, I think I really started to develop a taste for darkness. <laughs> There's like when you really start to look yes. at some of the Renaissance paintings, you're like, oh, like there is a very specific way that they are drawing the eye to a an area of this painting or certain areas of this painting or, you know, using, of course, using like shapes and color, but also like they were most of that canvas is black or dark or just just super dark in the areas that they um you know it, it, a lot of if not to put on my fedora but like when people talk about like caravaggio like there's a lot of really high contrast images because all they really had was like a window right that was just blown out as reference as they would be painting these things um but not but like not being afraid of the darkness i think really like stuck with me and being able to I don't know, produce something or be, or, or understand that the power of, of what high contrast and dark images can do. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, uh, as I've heard David Fincher say, uh, in like interviews or, or DVD commentary, it's what you don't do. It's what you right. don't show. Yeah. You know, that's important. And it's something you can I, do anything. I, yeah. 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 And especially now with like the cameras with the dynamic range that where they're at, like, and, and what we do at Tested, too, is sort of is completely contradictory to that, where we're trying to show the details on certain things, right? It's not dramatic filming, but it's like we, we, we and I guess it all makes, it's project specific, but like taking all of this information and, and being like, what do we really want out of this? Like, we yes, we can like capture all of this and we can overlight this thing, but like, is that, is that what we want to do here? And I don't know. Yeah, yes. it's, it's something I still struggle with, <laughs> but one love. Well, and especially with these uh, modern cameras, you end up, it's almost easier to think about darkness because y- the only way to shape contrast is to remove light. Whereas with film, you have to give it light to get yeah. anything, you know, otherwise it's going to be black with, with digital sensors. It's like, like right now, this is starting to look quite lit because the sun's kind of hiding from, you know, this is a North facing window. But yeah. um, if I were to turn off all the lights, you'd still see everything. Right. Yeah. The sen- yeah. The, the, the sensitivity of cameras too has become much more fun to paint uh, images on because even going back to like the XL twos and like those, those video cameras still needed quite a bit of light. And so you're always kind of 
overlighting or blasting things just yeah. to just to get you know a properly exposed image but like now being able to take like in now lights have also been super cheap i shot an entire short film using like one dimmable quasar 2 and a high sensitivity camera because i was able to like just give it a, a, the amount of light it needed bring the sensitivity of the camera up and we didn't have a whole lot of natural light blown out the image but like you can use much more subtle strokes to do the bigger things i think now which is super exciting Dude, the number of DPs talking about like all the DPs using the Venice, the number of DPs who have said like, yeah, I mean, we, we set like a big light outside so that we can pretend it's the sun, but inside it's like a lot of negative fill and, and, and Titan tubes. Yeah. <laughs> like every DP has got a set of Titan tubes somewhere. Yeah. If you would have told me 10 years ago, how much I would love negative, like using negative fill, <laughs> I'd be like, what really a big thing? A duotine? Like, yeah. Oh well, yeah. I've yeah. got like two bolts of it. I'll just put it up on one side of a room. Just yeah. like that's shadow now. <laughs> I actually heard uh, going back to your idea of like paring things down to like its basic form, you know, especially when you're showing detail and stuff. Uh, someone had recently brought up a, a Gordon Willis quote, which was uh, when you're shooting film, he found that uh, this is kind of later in his life, but he was saying that a lot of modern film seems to be trying to add a lot, you know, mm-hmm. trying to do more and more because more and more things are possible and he was like no don't do that you want to keep it simple keep pare everything down to its most basic right thing to to get the information across sometimes it's just one window light sometimes it's a look instead of a a, a sentence and then the other thing was he said was it's simple not simplistic you yeah don't dumb it down say, like simple doesn't trying, mean lazy <laughs> like yeah right well you're not trying to dumb it down for the audience you're trying to make it the most uh the easiest to digest. Dig- yeah, digestible. You're yeah. not making it stupid. You're making it specific, you know? Um, yeah. And I assume in Adam's <laughs> fucking man cave, it's a little hard to simplify anything, you know, <laughs> visually. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They, we, they, we, we, we've been going through how to rig, rig this place, rig that place up to be, to be usable, uh, or to be, to not fight us so hard. Cause right, right now we're using a few led fluorescents. He's got a few old school fluorescents. I just give off this crazy green. He's got a skylight that we keep ending, but it falls off. So we need to get up there. We need to black it out. I think at some point we're going to build out a grid, uh, just a, like a, like a truss or something above and just yeah. start putting some area lights down. But it's, it's tricky because what I've noticed shooting in so many shops is every time I sit there and like spend a pre-rig couple hours or a day making it, look super like oh this is great this looks fantastic like super nice and like just yeah creamy like this i love this and then they they come in and they want to they want to start working and being filmed doing the work stuff and like they can't see a thing (laughs) or like it's it's difficult they almost need it's like they they need to have large ambient area lights with little shadows so even if i had everything just the entire ambient exposure of the room brought way up I couldn't really accent things with hard lights because like if a shadow falls from their face on down to the the table where they're trying to do soldering, it's just, it doesn't, it makes it unworkable. And so there's been a big trying to dance around folks who um, trying to figure out what the, what, what the balance is on making a, a nice looking image in a workshop, but also having the workshop be usable for the person who's using it. Uh, I wonder if you could like uh, find a way to include the light that they need in your package so like if they need a flashlight or, or a lamp or something, get one that has like a really nice TLCI, something that like you can use as a 
Yeah. As a light, like a practical, basically, basically just use that, that's, figure yeah. out a practical, you know, that's where I think we're going is like, take all the fluorescence, put, give, yeah, put some actual, like, you know, Asteras or something quasars in there. And then he's got a whole lot of, he did build like some panels onto his table that are film lights and that can, I can adjust. So I kind of have everything sort of set up around the 4,500 range and it's, you know, it's, it's tricky. It's uh it's different. It's a different, a different thing than, than, uh, unscripted and documentary stuff like that is it can be a much much more challenging than being able to like have whatever you want in a, in a studio and do whatever you want sure yeah T- talk to me about um kind of shooting that um uh g4 piece and what you learned on that project yeah that was um so one of our branded spots was we were working with g4 which is like a a, a television network back in the 2010s or so, they went away for a little while and they were doing a big relaunch. And so they were, work, they were working with us to uh, promote that. And they sponsored four build videos and then one big finale piece. And so we gave them our sort of traditional tested one day builds, uh, which are like half hour to an hour long videos of Adam building something. And it was all, he was building essentially a spacesuit from scratch. Uh, he's, he has a background in visual effects and and working on props and stuff. And he's never actually, he's built space, space suit replicas, but this was a, his own, his own design, his own creation. He was kind of a, a designer slash builder and built these two spacesuits that we then shot in this sort of cinematic finale. This like two minute long, uh, piece that would reveal the G4 network kind of coming back. And the creative on it was essentially, it would be a bit of a, it would be a bit of like a fashion piece. We would be shooting these things in a sci-fi environment and then at the end, give it an MTV style reveal, like an old V old, uh, CRT TV showing the G4 logo. And he w- he wanted to include this like chess game being that it was a video game company. He wanted to take this like old game element and involve it. And so the creative was basically shoot the suits in a sci-fi location, have a chessboard in it, RT <laughs> television, uh, and then it was kind of handed to me as um, sort of dual director DP role to to execute it. And so that was a situation where we did have to scale up. We did a lot of location scouting here in San Francisco. Couldn't find anything that really matched us, uh, matched the, the, the scope of what we wanted to show and ended up going down to Los Angeles to one of his old coworkers, uh, Fawn Davis at Fonco Studios. And this is the benefit, I think, of Los Angeles set locations is that there's a lot of places there that have like one building will have five different stages, right? <laughs> you have like one building will have the police precinct and like the, the doctor's office and the bar. And so his, is his, his studio is set up to be a fabrication shop, but it also has four or five stages within it. He's he has like a, like a modular spaceship that sort of has the interior all built out that you can sort of move around. And he's got a few, um, like a bar set, uh, a few other sets. So we were able to knock out, three or four locations in his one shop for the one day. And so we got a small crew together, uh, hired them down South, got like an AC, a grip, uh, a gaffer, you know, the, the regular camera support team. And then also got set designers, uh, rented the cameras and then got Atlas anamorphic lenses to give it that, you know, that sci-fi, that sci-fi look. Uh, and then got the two suits that Adam made, got the hosts. And uh, I essentially storyboarded it out. I think I have this posted somewhere, but I, I storyboarded it. I do, I, I do this quite often where I, we didn't have a script, but we had boards. And then I took those boards and I bring them in. And this is kind of going back to what I used to do as a kid. I, br- I bring them into the computer 
and narrate through the boards as they're sort of like an animatic almost. Uh, That's actually really smart. Gets you good yeah, on timing. I've done this. I've done this a bunch, and like I'll, I'll, and I think it's more for me to understand where like shots I don't need, or like you said, timing, figuring out the pacing of something. Because I'll add music, I'll add sound effects. Sometimes I'll like read the script. Um, I'll like, I'll read the parts of it. Uh, and so I did that for this. Brought the boards, brought the animatic with us, kind of showed everybody. Got you know, did got the whole team on board for this this idea, and then um, yeah, did one pre rig day of going through getting getting all the set design stuff. We had to age everything quite a bit. The idea was it was like a dilapidated um, environment, and so we had a, a, a few folks there just aging things down, putting a lot of dust on things. One of my one of my friends described my shooting style as dusty, and I think I've like. <laughs> I'm like, what does that mean? What does, what does that mean exactly? And I think it's just it, being someone that grew up on Carpenter films and like that style of of shooting, like the, even like the the Dean Cundy <laughs> cinematography. Like, there is something I do like about having a, a dirty frame, of yeah. just a lot of uh, dust. So anyway, so we did a lot of dust. We had a lot of atmosphere. We brought hazers, uh, did the whole thing, and and did one pre rig day and then one shooting day, which was not enough. Um, I think. If anything I learned on this as if anything I learned from this, it is that a good AD is awesome. We did not, we had an AD yeah. for our New Zealand shoot and our day was efficient and like went through. We didn't have an AD for this and it, we, we felt it. Uh, it was a, a rushed day. There were certain aspects of like the, the costumes that weren't, um, weren't working. Like they were just like, they're kind of digging in. And so we had to kind of change the way we, be shot for comfortability for the, the, the talent. Uh, but yeah, we ended up doing, I think, I think a good solid two minutes. We probably had to forfeit maybe three or four shots. Uh, and then I took that in the post and did an, a light edit in color. And then we did like fully work. Adam and I went through a shop and did, took the suit and made all the, the sound effects and did just, I think I have like 30 layers in, in premiere of just sound design stuff happening. And then, uh, uh, yeah, scored it and then pushed it out for, for G4. Like I said, it's about two and a half minutes. I'm probably going to do like a 30 second cut down as a, you know, as a demo reel kind of thing. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah, I think, you know, working solo on so much stuff, this is, I think one of the, one of the things that starts at, I, is good to learn early on is like how to, how to know exactly what kind of crew and support team you need and then how to work with them to alleviate some of your um some alleviate some of your workload especially as like a both the director dp combo there's a lot i was juggling and i think having a larger support crew would have made that day even even it cost a little bit more i think it would have made that day much more efficient yeah well and especially if, if you are the director dp like everyone's coming to you with right their problems yeah. so now you're putting out a lot of fires and it was yeah kind of thing. having one ear of of just the the grip gaffer team talking to me and then having the other ear of like working with the talent and like, and the, uh, the folks that we had there that was kind of running the, the, the stages. It was, uh, it was a lot. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't by any means, um, a disaster, but it was definitely a lot to, to juggle. Well, and I'm sure that shooting rhythm that you're used to kind of in the more documentary style where you're finding the shot, uh, it, it could probably be, I could imagine it was, uh, maybe not difficult, but, a, but a solid gear change to try to do something scripted. Yeah. And I think I was ready for it. Uh, I, I, I've, I've shot a handful 
of things that required larger setups now. And so I was prepared for it. But the thing I think I didn't do was get everybody else on the same page, right? Like mm. everyone was used to sort of shooting quick run and gun. And so being able to explain like, no, if we want this to look the way that we've all agreed that it should look, we need to spend X amount of time doing this and sort of having to, having to bring everyone's expectations to that level is all, I guess, all part of the communicating job of, of directing that I think um, should not be overlooked. Yeah. A big part of the, the, this podcast that I like to do is figure out where non-film influences can influence someone. Right. And uh, I'm wondering if there's anything that Adam's sort of uh, singular process, he seems like he's kind of a, uh, maybe not unique, but he it's all his thing. He's developed the way that he does his shit. Yeah. I'm wondering if, if that methodology or his methodology specifically has informed uh, any sort of filmmaking for you anything that you've kind of taken from that process interesting yeah um because i've used i've used his like get the cheapest tool uh until you know what you need and then buy an expensive tool. i've given that advice to everyone who says like what camera should i get i'm like just get the one you can afford until you know what you need. And I, I directly stole that from him. That's <laughs> a really good one. Yeah. Cause it, it is, you do, especially with us in the camera stuff, like we see, we see the Ronin and like, I need that. That's what I need. But like, do you and like, yeah, trying out, <laughs> trying out some steady cam or, uh, uh, glide cam stuff first. Like there's definitely been aspects of that I've taken with me. That's a good one. Same with like the, the right tool for the right job. Uh, I mean, honestly, I think the biggest thing of being in such close quarters with him for so long is really understanding the power of good communication, <laughs> like really understanding how interesting, to, how, to, how to articulate things in a, in a, in a way that gets your point across, um, effectively. And like, that's all part of him being on camera and that's all, you know, part of his, his job for so long through Mythbusters. But I think. I really starting to see the effects of that and how little time he could waste of other people being able to just come right out and, and articulate what is, what is the goal here and what is being said and, and how to do it in a very nice way. Like he's, he's exactly how you see on TV, like this personality. And it's, it's um, I think there's a lot of things to take from that uh, for me at least, but there's probably more stuff that'll come to me later. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Uh, for anyone listening, the, the conceit of this interview is that we're friends. So it's a little easier to just like sit here and talk for three fucking hours and, I know. you know, but I'll, I'll try to keep it to the hour, uh, like we promised. But, um, the way I end all of these interviews is, uh, asking the same two questions. Uh, first one being, although I just kind of asked it, but, um, what's a piece of advice that maybe you were given or you read somewhere or something that okay. has kind of stuck with you through your filmmaking career? Yeah, that's, that's an interesting, like, I feel like I've gotten different pieces of advice that have helped me different at different stages. I'll take a couple. It doesn't have to just be one. (laughs) I think the one, if I, and I was thinking about this recently, if I, if there was a, you know, I'm going on, I'm, I'm getting close to late thirties now. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I loved, I loved the change. (laughs) I'm almost, uh, 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 uh. (laughs) but I feel like I spent a long time, my twenties, and 30 early 30s sort of 
a bit paralyzed in terms of self-generate. Like right now I'm in this like self-generation mode where I'm trying to like generate as much content myself to, to pursue the goals that I have. But I feel like there was a long time, especially when you start really consuming, when I started really getting into film, I started consuming a lot of film and, and get having filmmakers influence me. Um, I sort of started to understand my taste a little bit better and like understand things. And I almost became sort of paralyzed in going from make, like shooting whatever short films with my friends to like not making anything for a long time. Cause like, I couldn't think of anything what I would deem as like original, original enough and good enough. Mm. Right. And a, there was a few years ago, it's a, a guy, I want to say his name's Kirby Ferguson, but he came up with this, with a video called everything is a remix, which, which I, I highly recommend. <laughs> I think I've seen that, but yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's all about the idea that great artists, uh, you know, they, they go through a process of like, I want to call it stealing, but like taking someone else's idea, sort of figuring out their own spin on it, and in that, and that methodology, like in that process of doing that and then creating something that sort of imitates it, you tend to create something new or something original from that, that process. And I think if I would have given myself my younger self advice, it would just been just make, make the stuff that like you're super into. <laughs> Don't worry about being original. Just like I needed to, I needed to spend time polishing my skills honing, you know, getting these tools together. And like, I wish I would have shot, there were short, you know, short stories that I've read. I was a big, you know, I was a big breeder of like Ray Bradbury. Like, I wish I would have went back and like shot, like ad adapted things, shot things, not, not being per paralyzed by having this original thought. Um, and if I would have done so, I would have think I would have got a lot more skills quicker and not been so precious about making that original thing. So yeah, I think the big piece of advice I would have given myself is like imitate more to get your voice to come back around and get your original voice. Yeah. I mean, the thing I've always said is like, if you're two things, actually, uh, one, I early on kind of started to think of myself as part of a lineage. Film is a relatively new medium. It's only a hundred and some odd years right. old, you know? So if you think of like, uh, maybe like a family tree, you know, I always think like, where, where do I sit on that family tree and how am I going to advance Oh, interesting. Those, yeah. Those people, you know, we're not related in any way, but like I think of certain filmmakers who influenced me and how I'm gonna, how am I going to take what I learned from them or what I like about them and meld it with and this is the second thing. If you can steal from like three artists and put it into one project, that's your thing. Right. <laughs> if you steal right, yeah. from one person, you're stealing. But if, if you yeah. three add three things, it's your thing now. Uh, uh, um I like but, that. That's a good formula. <laughs> yeah. Cause you know, two even is like, oh, I can see, you know, cause it's, everyone always describes the film as like, oh, it's like aliens meets jaw or I guess alien is jaws, but you know, you know what I'm saying? Like it's always something meets something, but if you had right. a third thing, whole new thing. Um, but yeah, the family tree thing is something I've always thought about, which, uh, but also yeah. I think, tell, tell me if this is kind of part of your thought process there. Cause it occurred to me as you were saying it, I think a lot of that para uh, paralysis can come from the idea of making something and have it not be good enough. For oh, like yeah. you're you're already thinking about distribution when you haven't shot a single frame. It's like you yeah. don't have to distribute it. No, you can just yeah. make it for you. <laughs> or like feedback. Like I, I I know that that sort of messed with me a little bit as I started like working with folks and like I, I mean it, it probably happened subconsciously at least of you know early stages of like working with higher profile people like you know Adam or before Adam or just like 
who are making really good television or movies or something like, oh, I'm never like, I don't want to make it and then look, look like amateur in their eyes. <laughs> right. right. Like, and that's sort of a weird, you know, something you should visit a therapist about, I guess. <laughs> but like, yeah, yeah. there's a lot of like insecurities, I guess, that artists can have. And like it going into that paralysis mode is not good. Uh, well, and I think honesty with oneself or not only oneself, but like honesty, if, if you go up to someone and you're like, Hey, like this is a kind of a leap for me. I'm really excited to be here, but I'm just like being real upfront. Like I haven't done something at this level. I'm, I'm here to work oh, yeah. and I'm here to learn. I think they appreciate that more than you bullshitting your way through the experience. And then they learn about it later. You know, that was going to be my other, through. the other advice I was kind of thinking about was, was, th- was that, I don't know who said it. I don't know if it was a family member, but when I first started getting into this, it was knocking on doors. Like, like the way I got involved with the music video guy here is basically cold calling production companies. Like, Hey, like, here's my situation. Like here, like, I'm a sponge for knowledge. Uh, and I understand that I don't have a whole lot of experience, but like, I want to show up and learn and do whatever I can. Like people, people who are, do, have been doing something for a while. Like they, they kind of dig teaching somebody. They're yeah. like passing on their skills. And I've, especially now I'm at a point where I'm interviewing people for, you know, for jobs in the last few years. Like I met folks like a few years back who were like coming out of college and they, you know, they seem to, they have everything figured out. Like they know, like there's a, a put off. Like when you meet someone who just doesn't have any sort of humble acknowledgement of their own skill level or experience, like it's not super great. And so being able to, yes, say what you, yeah, I'm looking for this, like be, being honest, but also having that desire and thirst for knowledge, I think can, can really open you up to a lot of new experiences and mentorships. Yeah. You know, it's that thing. Like uh, when people say like, Oh, if you want to, uh, if you want to be interesting, be interested because people like to talk yeah. about themselves. It's kind of the <laughs> yeah. same thing. Like people like to teach. Yeah. That dude, that was a big thing when I was young. Here's some advice that has nothing to do with filmmaking for anyone listening. No one wants to be fixed. <laughs> right. No one. Yeah. Don't, don't just start giving people advice about stuff. Don't fix people's problems. If someone comes to you and says like, Oh, man, this is, I'm really struggling with this. Don't immediately go like, well, what you should do. What you need to do Because they is don't this. care. Yeah. They don't fucking care. They're going to find that, you know, if they ask you, great, then they care. But other than that, just be a good shoulder, you know? <laughs> it's funny. I, I, I'm, I'm really good with receiving feedback on projects and stuff, but there are some times when like I, sh- I have something and someone gives me un- unsolicited feedback. I'm like, I didn't ask for that feedback. <laughs> like, just, yeah. It's just, it's already published. Just do it go away. I saw, I saw this email going around on, there's this uh, Twitter account called for exposure dot TXT, I think. And one of them was like, this guy was cold emailing. I think they were like YouTube accounts, but it was just a copy paste job. And it was like, uh, I've watched your channel and it's great, but I know I can do better. Are you, in- <laughs> oh, no. are you interested in this, that, and the other? And everyone was just like, buddy, that is not how you <laughs> introduce yourself. Oh, I had You're somebody bad that that beacon short film that we just talked about the g4 thing there was somebody who ripped it from youtube cut it in their way that they would make it better and then posted it and then came into the comments and said hey just for you guys know i thought this can be better if this this and that i'm like wow what a ballsy move (laughs) oh no you know there is something to be said for like i'm sure that person was well-intentioned right but uh there's 
that is kind of the downfall or not the downfall, but like a downside to, I, I hate to say it, like the YouTube generation, which is yeah. the, the high knowledge, low experience person. Yeah. Doesn't, doesn't quite know. Cause like meeting those people like on set, it's very apparent. Mm-hmm. They know every single speck of the camera, but yeah. couldn't, you know, can't communicate well or, uh, or has lived on YouTube learning from, I was just talking about this when I have to start not talking about this. It's, it's like every, every podcast I talk about where I went to college and I had to stop. And this is another thing is like talking about YouTube because it's, it's addictive. You're on, I'm on YouTube all the time, oh, yeah. but it's like a lot of times it's amateurs teaching amateurs. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, people want to become filmmakers and it's like, well, are you watching movies? Like, do you have a criterion streaming, you know, uh, thing or, or are you watching pick a YouTuber, uh, you know, te- yeah. a photographer teaching you how to make movies? Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, and, and it's something like, I mean, this is probably petty, but like whenever I hear, when I hear a, a shooter refer to themselves as a director of photography, I'm like, well, like, are you just, are you just shooting like with your DSLR or like, are you managing a crew or like figuring out a day or like understand like there's a difference there. I, I don't think it's petty at all. Cause a lot of DPs have talked about that and it's, it really is. It's kind of, that's like a micro level of this macro problem, which is um, education is so accessible mm-hmm. that I think people can get the false sense of I've put the time in. Right. I sat there and watched all these. I'm ready. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Or I read all the books or whatever it is. And, and while you may be knowledgeable, you still need, it's kind of what I was talking sort of off stream about, uh, the, the person on the snowboard, you know, where they, they, they hadn't gone through the 10 years of experience that I had. They just started talking to me like they knew shit. And I'm like, okay, but like, I think film is one of those things where it's like, you do have to pay your dues just because you know, a lot doesn't mean you're the DP or whatever. Like even I get kind of the further away I get from doing, you know, these past couple of years, I haven't really been able to shoot anything. So it's like the further away I get from the yeah. last project I did, the more and more concerned I am about saying I'm like a DP Oh yeah, <laughs> or a cinematographer just, or whatever. I was just having a crisis, existential crisis a couple of days ago. Of like, what, I haven't, what, I haven't touched a camera in like a couple of months now. Like, Oh geez, who am I? Yeah. Well, next time you're in LA, we'll have to uh, come up with yeah. a project and just shoot it. That's interesting. You brought up the, the, I, I feel like that's what, that's what caused me to go knock on doors when I did is cause in the, in 2004, 2005, like final cut, everyone was editors. Final cut yep. came out. It was kind of new. Everyone was editors, mini DV, everyone was shooters. And then there was materially that you can consume online that taught you everything. And it was like, how do I not become, how do I get out of this pool of, of people? Like I can sit here and learn everything on my computer and be part of this, but like I, th- I, the, 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 the advantage I need to give myself is I need to go out and like actually talk to people and like knock on doors, put my time in with these folks as like production assistant or interning. And so like there was a big realization where I was like, if I just keep sitting here learning, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna be just like a million of these other people in Los Angeles who are all learning at the same time online. Uh, so anyway, that was the first question. Uh, <laughs> Try to wrap this up. Uh, Second question, much easier. Uh, Suggest a movie for people to watch that traditionally I say isn't yours, but. Ooh, out of all the movies, all out of all time. 
You can make a couple if you'd like. Dude, the question, I've said this a few times, but the question used to be, what's your favorite film? And I've learned that's a that's a way worse question. Oh, jeez, yeah, <laughs> that one's tough. It's tough to attach yourself to, like, your 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 taste to one specific film. I'm, one I, thing I'm starting to do, actually, is with people who've shot features, uh, I'm going to start asking, uh, your movie's in a double feature. What's the movie that comes before yours? Oh, that's a good one. I like that. Because I think that'll narrow it. It's easier to I answer. I think a lot. Like, whenever I watch movies, I'm always thinking, like, Ooh, that'd be a good double feature with this other movie I just saw. I do, too. That's funny. Um, but what sucks is my girlfriend doesn't want to watch two movies back to back. She barely wants to watch <laughs> one movie. Who else am I going to show this to? <laughs> uh, I would think it's in those terms. I'm going to do two movies. I had one, but now you made me think of another one. Okay, cool. Um, this one I saw, uh, in a theater, it came out in like the nineties. Um, it's an anime called perfect blue. Have you heard of okay. this? No. So it's a, it's an, it's a very adult. I mean, in terms of it's very, it's kind of, it's, it is a, it is a, it is a movie. It is like a straight, it's not like an anime. It is a, a movie about a, like Akira or whatever. Yeah. It's about a singer, a, a female singer who goes off, who is in this big pop band leaves to, um, do like an acting career ends up involved with some stalker and sort of her mental stability starts to sort of deteriorate. It is a wonderfully made movie. It looks amazing. The storytelling is super good. Like the soundtrack's awesome. But if you want to see where like 70% of Darren Aronofsky, Aronofsky's sort of pull is from watch this movie. Cause it's, it's very, you'll see a lot of black swan in this movie. You'll see a lot of, um, like Requiem for a Dream. It's sort of all that weird mind fuckery that Darren Aronofsky loves to delve into is sort of, th- this is probably one of his biggest influences and it's such a cool movie. I like, I, I love some of his movies. I'm, I'm hit, hit or miss, but like Black Swan is one of my favorites of his. Sure. Um, and Perfect Blue, once I saw that, I'm like, this is like, this is right up there with it. I would, yeah, I think it's uh, a fantastic movie. Um, again, like I don't know where you can find it on streaming or it came out like late 90s. Uh, the other movie I'm going to go recent. Uh, I saw this movie called Nine Days. Have you seen this one? Nine this Days. A, no, I've seen Six Day. <laughs> Nine Days is a, it's a newer movie about um, I don't know how to explain it without giving. I guess there's not a whole lot to give away. It's a very like one location sort of sci-fi ish concept about a a guy who's sort of deciding who is going to go live life. <laughs> so it's a sort of a weird, other weird mind fuckery movie, but it's a guy whose, whose job is, is to interview these candidates throughout this nine day process of who will then go off and like live a life. Like, I guess be bored. Like it's, they're not clear on like the logistics of it, but essentially sure. it is some pre-life pre-life space that these people are in. I think it's sort of like Zazie beats a few other folks. I can't remember the name of. Oh, she's cool. Um, yeah, yeah, she's one of the main one of the main candidates. Uh, it just it's one of those movies that I love, like big, big actiony movies, big pop movies. But it, like, is one of those indie movies that just like kind of rocked me. It sort of investigates like, the meaning of life and existence, and it's super, super cool. I don't think it's terribly long either. It's like an hour and forty five minutes or so. Uh, but it's one of those movies I feel like is going to go under a lot of people's radars um, in terms of a lot of indie movies <laughs> that come out. But um, sure. Yeah, those are great. Yeah, I'll have to check both. Of them. I've, I've recently, honestly, a lot of these suggestions that I get from DPs, I end up just throwing it on an Amazon list. And like if it's on Blu-ray, it's pretty much in yeah. my arms. Like by the time <laughs> the the episode goes out um, big, I've been buying so many Blu-rays recently. Right? Really? 
I just suddenly it's, I might've been the pandemic, but uh, physical media has just become like an obsession of mine, especially cause like, you know, movies get edited before they hit streaming. It's different than you remember it or whatever, you know, Disney, oh, yeah. you know, famously has like been editing shows out from <laughs> under people. Like you watch it and then the next day you come back and you try to watch it again and you're like, wait a second, where's that yeah. thing? And they changed it, you know, Spider-Man far from home got edited while it was in theaters. There's like two really? sections. There's two, uh, the section with, um, green goblin where he's talking to his helmet and the section where, uh, Toby Maguire comes through the portal, right. both got re-edited after release and then pushed to all the theaters. Wow. So depending on when you saw it, you saw a different, slightly different film than everyone That's else. That's interesting. Yeah. And also, I guess if you haven't seen it, I don't know if it's spoilers or not. <laughs> Oh, if they, it, dude, it's the biggest. It's about to beat Avatar. Yeah. If you haven't seen it, that's on you. <laughs> it's, an ama- it's an amazing movie. I loved that movie. Uh, dude, no you know what's? Do, I assume you saw The Matrix. I did. Yeah. So let's talk about a double feature. <laughs> I saw The Matrix and then the next day saw Spider-Man. Oh, and the commentary on nostalgia before right. watching Spider-Man was jarring. Huh? Because yeah, I went, I went into Matrix not like I specifically didn't read anything about it. I barely watched any trailers. Like I just wanted to go because the Matrix, like for me, is one of the films that got me into filmmaking. And to have the filmmaker basically go like, "I know why you're here to watch this, and I don't like you," I, you know, <laughs> yeah. I was, I was like, okay, well, this message clearly is for me, and it's something that I talk about all the time. I'm always like, I don't want any more remakes. I don't want any more sequels. Like I want more original th- content. And then there I am in matrix four, like, yeah, Neo, yeah. you know, like, <laughs> and, and having that, uh, sort of dichotomy thrown in my face. And I just went like, Oh, I have to kind of reevaluate my oh, creative geez. brain in that way. And then I turn around and watch Spider-Man and it's just the nostalgia train from hell. Like, <laughs> yep. Spider-Man was interesting. Cause I, I, I mean, great film. Probably, I loved it, but yeah. Yeah. But it's also like, Spider the Tobey Maguire Spider Man is like when super, superhero movies were starting to become good. That and uh, X Men were like the only X-Men, two yeah. good ones. And Tobey Maguire, those first two movies are so good, and I was so hard on all of them for the third movie. I didn't not like it. I blamed all of them. I didn't like Tobey Maguire Spider Man anymore, and I was so hard on them. And when Tobey when he walked through the portal, it was I was explaining this to Norm. It was as if you had a fall like a really bad falling out with a friend twenty years ago. And then you see him again for the first time and like, you forget everything. Just give him a hug. <laughs> like, yeah. I just wanted to like give Tobey Maguire a hug. Like, oh, I missed you. You did so much for me. <laughs> like, yeah. 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 And uh, honestly, I liked, I did kind of like how they handled Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man where they, it was, it was a little more than subtle when they were like, <laughs> yeah. no one fucking liked Like when he, when he was like, yeah, I guess I'm the third Spider-Man, whatever. He's Why like am I the, number three? Uh, annoying middle sibling. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're just ribbing him so hard. And I was like, that's nice. Um, but uh, yeah, I guess we should probably wrap. I'm sure you have a life to get to, but, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, thanks for doing the podcast, man. We'll have yeah, to- no, it's, it's super fun to just, yeah. Spend a couple hours talking shop or talking. Yeah. Hours I'll uh, let you go and uh, I'll see you next month or so. All right, cool. There you go. Yeah. Later, bud. Frame and Reference is an Owlbot production. It's produced and edited by me, Kenny McMillan and distributed by Pro Video Coalition. Our theme song is written and performed by Mark Pelly, and the FNR Matbox logo was designed by Nate Truax of Truax Branding Company. You can read or watch the podcast you've just heard by going to ProVideoCoalition.com or YouTube.com slash Owlbot, respectively. And as always, thanks for listening.